0: Good morning. All right. So grab a Bible or, you know, turn your Bible on, whatever you've got to do. James chapter five in the New Testament. James chapter five in the New Testament is where we're going to be uh, this morning. So the series uh, that that we're going to do here for two weeks is called House of Prayer. House of Prayer. All right. So I'm going to explain that in a second. But just just even as we are about to talk about prayer, okay, I just want to acknowledge something, and, and this is just something I was thinking about this morning when I woke up, that that when you hear a message, a teaching from God's word on prayer, it can tend to feel like, hey, God wants you to pray more, okay? And the effect of that can be to feel guilty, And I think that's when we look at prayer as a religious thing. But when we look at prayer as a relational thing, and that's why I'm so glad we just sang that song, that his affection is great for his people. When we see prayer through the lens of relationship with God, then when we hear that God wants us to pray more, it doesn't make us feel guilty. It makes us feel desired. God wants to spend more time with you. God wants to develop his relationship with you. And that's a good thing. So we're going to be talking about prayer, prayer. And we're going to be in James chapter five. But before we get there, I just want to draw your attention to a verse that you maybe have heard before. Matthew 21, verse 13, it says, it is written, my house shall be called a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of robbers. You have made it a den of robbers. So Matthew 21, 13, it says, my house shall be a house of prayer. Now, okay, let's just talk about that for a second. Obviously, my series titles from this verse, right? Jesus is quoting an Old Testament verse when he says this in the Gospels. He's quoting from Isaiah chapter 56, verse 7. And he is talking to the first century religious leaders. If you're familiar with the story, he's in the temple and he sees that they're like way off, right? Like they're, you know, having uh, like a flea market in the temple. And he turns over the tables and Jesus is angry. And he says, you've turned the house of prayer into a den of robbers. You know that verse? So Jesus it's telling the first century religious leaders, that's what you've done. But the desire of God is, is that his house be a house of prayer. Here's a question. What would Jesus say to the 21st century church if he came and he said, you know what? God's house is to be a house of prayer. You've turned it into a, what would fill in that blank? And don't say den of thieves and robbers, because that's what they were doing in the first century. We might not be doing the same thing. I hate it when people try to apply it exactly the same way to us. They're like, you know, I went to this church and they had they sold coffee in the lobby. Exact application of den of thieves and robbers. They're selling their t-shirts. You know it's not biblical. Didn't they read Matthew 21? You know what I'm talking about? It's getting a little crazy. It's like, maybe we should think about what Jesus would say to us with that verse. So that's the that's the series. I, I I know that we have real needs in our lives. Real relational needs, needs, needs for care. We have needs in our lives. And we have needs in our church. We, we have needs for more people to volunteer. We have needs for leaders. We have needs for disciple makers. We have needs. You have needs. And I know. Such an able church. You guys are amazing. I know that as we have needs, we're going to harness our energy, time, our thoughts. We're going to do what we feel that we can do to meet the needs that we have. But the burden of this couple of weeks of talking about prayer is this, that we remember to seek the Lord in prayer for our needs and not just rely on our own strength. Okay? So we're looking at James 5 this morning. The title is Prayer for When Life Happens. This is a passage with six verses, and the word prayer is in these six verses six times. So it's about prayer. But it's about the occasions in our life that come up when we might wonder what we should do. Like if you've ever seen one of those topical concordances where you're like anxiety and you're flipping and you're like, I need a verse for that or, or depression or finances or this is like that. It's like when life happens. So James is going to go through some situations and he's going to say, here's what to do. So prayer for when life happens. So let me read the passage and pray, and then we're going to jump in. James 5, 13 through 18. If anyone, wait, is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praise. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church, and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick, and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed fervently that it might not rain. And for three years and six months, it did not rain on the earth. Then he prayed again, And heaven gave rain, and the earth bore its fruit. So let's bow and pray for God to really help us understand this passage this morning, and even more, to encourage our hearts in prayer. Let's pray. God, we thank you this morning for the opportunity to come together and be together and lift up the name of Jesus, our Savior, in song, and just just in this place, God. Thank you that we could be here to encourage one another this morning. We pray for those that are not here, that you'd keep them safe, that you'd encourage them, God. We pray for all the other good churches in Raleigh, in America, and around the world this morning. Pray that your word would be declared and that people's lives would be changed. God, help us to see how you want us to care for one another and to pray for one another this morning. Start something in our lives and in our church today. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Prayer for when life happens. All right, so the first point this morning from verse 13, the first part of verse 13, is when life is hard, go to God in prayer. You'll see it very clearly here in verse 13. It says this, is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Let him pray. It's just, it's a command. The word pray is a command. It's like, pray. The author of the book of James is James. James. A little bit about him, he's the half-brother of Jesus. He is the son of Joseph and Mary. He was not always a believer. There are verses in the Gospels where it talks about the brothers of Jesus being like, Jesus is crazy. But Jesus, after his resurrection, appeared to James, and James was converted. Jesus, who formerly he just saw as a man, just as his brother, he now understood him to be the unique son of God, born of a virgin, Jesus. And so James is a believer. He's a leader in the early church. His nickname was James the Just. Another nickname for him was Camel Knees because of the calluses on his knees because of his devotion to prayer. He believed in prayer. In fact, in the first chapter of James, he tells us it's a very well-known couple of verses. He says that when you're in trials, count it all joy. And that goes through verse four. But then in verse five, what does he say? He says, ask God in prayer for wisdom. That's all connected. When you're in trials, count it all joy and ask God for the wisdom that you need to do that. James believed in prayer. So again, verse 13, is anyone among you suffering? Let him or her pray. How do we apply this simple point? Think about a couple of things with me. Number one, it is not wrong to pray when times are hard. It's like, that should be obvious, right? But I want to tell you that right now. Because Sometimes I think we feel like I haven't been praying enough, and oh, now here I go. I'll pray when times are hard. God's probably really ticked off at me about that. No, he's not. It's never wrong to pray. Is anyone suffering? Let him pray. Paul's imprisoned in, in Rome, and he needs that peace that surpasses all understanding that can only come about through prayer. Philippians 4. It's not selfish or wrong, hear this, it is not selfish or wrong to pray about personal trials and personal needs. You're like, why are you even having to say this? You do know why. Don't shame yourself about your struggles. Well, (laughs) I would have a prayer request, but I know someone else in some other country has it worse than me, so I better not share. Stop that. That's... that. That is extremely unhealthy. Jesus prayed about things in his life. We are encouraged to cast our anxieties upon him because he cares for us. He cares for the person that you deem to have bigger problems than you, but he also cares for you. Is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Of course, we don't only want to pray about our personal needs, right? Of course. We want to mature in prayer to where our needs while still there are not the sum total of our prayer life. Of course, Jesus helps us do that. He teaches us to pray. He says, when you pray, pray like this. Our father, hallowed be your name. Start vertical with God. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. But then he gets to God. Give us our daily bread. Forgive us our trespasses. When life is hard, Go ahead and go to God in prayer. Know that he wants you to do that. Second, when life is good, go to God in praise. This is from verse 13 to the second part. It says, is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praise. Is anyone cheerful? The NIV says, is anyone happy? Is anyone right now experiencing some things where you would just say life's kind of good, at least in this area, life is good, there's some cheerfulness, I'm happy? He says, sing praise. The word sing praise literally in the Greek is sing a psalm. That's what it is. Sing a psalm. A praise to God. Praise is a key word. Part of happiness, and you know that it is part of our enjoyment, right? We enjoy something, but then praising it is part of the enjoyment. I give you an example: if I'm driving the car and my wife is with me, and we're driving down the road, and you know, I'm the, I'm driving in this situation, and she's passenger seat, and she's on her phone, perhaps just like I would be if I was in the passenger seat, and I see some amazing view, right? And I say, hey, hey, sweetie, look at the view. And she's like, hold on, hold on, I'm just checking something. And I'm like, what? We have a fight right then and there. (laughs) Has anyone else ever had anything like that happen? Or it could even be an amazing view just to me, like, did you see that customized Tacoma? Sweet, look at that Toyota Tacoma, look at that. It's like, and she doesn't look at it, and it's like, wait, that that not only was wrong and mean to me, but that actually depleted my enjoyment of the sight. Because praising it and sharing your praise of that thing with the person who's with you is all part of the enjoyment. C.S. Lewis says in his reflection on the Psalms, I think we delight to praise what we enjoy because the praise not merely expresses but completes the enjoyment. It is its appointed consummation. So when life is good, it's very important that we go to God in praise in order to truly and fully, as followers of Christ, bring that joy and happiness that we have all the way up to its highest joy as we point it to heaven and thank God for it. James puts it this way, is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praise. How do we apply this one? Lord, help us. This is hard. We often forget to praise God for the good things, for our happy experiences in life. We become self-reliant. We become cosmic plagiarists. We have blessing amnesia. We forget that God is the creator of every good thing and the giver of every good gift, not just the Bible and the spiritual things and the one hour on Sunday. So, before we move on to our third point, I just want to make an observation of our first two points. When life is hard, go to God in prayer when life is good, go to God in praise. Here's my observation. That, that we are to, no matter how life is going, go to God. There's a song, and I don't know if it's written based upon James chapter 5, verse 13, but you tell me if it could be. Blessed be your name by Matt and Beth Redmond. Listen to some of the words. Blessed be your name when the sun's shining down on me, when the world's all as it should be. Blessed be your name. Blessed be your name on the road marked with suffering, though there's pain in the offering. Blessed be your name. Every blessing you pour out, I'll turn back to praise. When the darkness closes in, Lord, still I'll say, blessed be the name of the Lord. Prayer for when life happens. Go to God in prayer. Go to God in praise. Now, number three. When I am sick, go to leadership for prayer for healing. Go to leadership for prayer for healing. Now, this would not be all you would do if you were sick. Okay, we're not that church that like doesn't believe in medicine and just you know call call a pastor. Um, but but I wonder if. We don't ever really think to ask for prayer from leadership when we're sick. Verse 14 says, If anyone among you sick, let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. Now, let's just break verse 14 down. Verse, it said, is anyone among you sick? So we're talking here about sickness. Let him call for the elders of the church. So, so make the call or, you know, text them, maybe. I don't know. Um, point to the person whose job it is to call the pastor when they are sick. That's right. It, it's on us. It's on God's people to reach out, to to say, I have a need, I'm sick, I want prayer. We've got to want it. You know how many stories I have heard about people being upset to the point of completely quitting church because, according to them, a pastor has not reached out to them when they were going through something and they wanted additional care and prayer. And what I find is that a verse like this is a totally new concept to them. Oh, God delegated that to me. Like, yeah, this verse is not intended to excuse pastors from knowing their people and reaching out and checking in on people. Of course not. But whose job is it to call and ask for prayer? This is the way God wants it to happen. Note that it says elders, gender masculine, person plural, context, a singular church. This implies being part of a local church with biblical leadership in place. Note that it says, let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. Now, that's the Lord Jesus. That's James talking about his brother Jesus, calling him the Lord. This oil is is symbolic of God's healing presence in a person's life, and that prayer of faith and of total confidence in God is taking place for this sickness with the leadership of my church. That's what this is. The oil is not medicinal. It is symbolic. So, you ready for verse 15? Because verse 15 is a little tricky. We've got to put our thinking cap on, all right? (laughs) Verse 15 And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick, and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. We're still under the point, when I am sick, go to leadership for prayer for healing. But let me ask a question about verse 15. There's actually a couple of questions we need to ask as we unpack this verse so we understand it. We don't just fly by it and everybody's like, well, he didn't address that one. No, we're going to address it. Does verse 15 100% guarantee healing of sickness? I, I mean, it almost reads that way. But does it say that? Like, should we think that? And I would say I don't think it is a 100% guarantee if it was, it would contradict other truths in the Bible, okay? Truths like this one, Psalm 139, your eyes saw my unformed body. All the days ordained for me were written in your book before one of them came to be. Why do I say it would contradict that verse? Because the truth of this verse is that the days of our lives are ordained by our sovereign God. And so if it's our time, it's our time. And it doesn't matter, you know, like if we get like a whole entire hundred gallons of oil and every elder in the city of Raleigh to pray for us. I mean, again, I don't think it 100% guarantees healing. I don't think verse 15 is trying to do that. Or it would contradict a verse like this, 1 John 5, 14, and this is the confidence that we have toward him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. So this is the idea that God has a will. Again, he's ordained our days. God has a will, and when we pray, when we seek him in prayer, he's going to do his will, and he's going to say yes to everything we ask that's in line with his will. So... But there's other stuff, right? Like Paul says in Second Timothy that he left his beloved friend Trophimus in Miletus because he was sick. Hello? Paul? You didn't read James? Paul, are you, not, are you not like righteous enough to pray over Trophimus and heal him? What about Paul's thorn in the flesh? Did Paul not have access to the strategy that guarantees 100% physical healing upon prayer from an elder in the church with an anointing of oil? Yet God said, Paul, I'm not taking away the thorn in your flesh. My grace is sufficient for you. So I don't think that we should say that verse 15, 100% guarantees healing of sickness. But, and this is very important, this verse does speak of God's power to heal, God's desire to heal, and it offers the possibility of healing through this prescribed means from God's word. It seems to almost be addressing a norm the way James is writing. Addressing a norm in the first century church as he's writing to these believers that they would know, yeah, that does work, James. So, the bottom line, I think, for us on that one is that we should have confidence as we pray for healing in the way God wants us to. There's one other thing in verse 15 that's tricky. It says at the end, If he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. It's like, Whoa, whoa, whoa. We're talking about healing from sickness, James. And then you're throwing in, If he has committed sins, he'll be forgiven. Does this mean that sick people have some kind of sin thing going on? Well, before we answer that question, let's just look at the verse very closely. Do you see the word if? Do you see it? That's an important word. If he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. So just this verse already opens up the possibility it could or could not be. Personal sin matter. Here's the truth: the Bible teaches that all sickness and death in this world is generally, generally, like big picture, generally caused by the fall of humankind by sin. Everything that's broken is because of sin. But the and the Bible also teaches that some personal sickness is caused by personal sin. First Corinthians 1130 speaks directly about this. So it can be, but it also clearly teaches that some sin, some sickness, some maladies are not caused by personal sin. John nine, one through three, write it down. If you're taking notes, the disciples come to Jesus because they're looking at this guy who's been blind since he was born. And they say to Jesus, who sinned, this guy or his parents? And Jesus is like, neither. This is so that I could heal him and God would be glorified. The whole thing's for that. So sometimes the scriptures teach that sickness could be a result of personal sin. Sometimes it could not at all be that. Here's the thing. Here's the thing. You will never know. You know about the the guy born blind, because Jesus actually in his word said this is the deal. But in our lives, in your friend's life, in your relative's life, you're not going to know unless God personally reveals it to you what's going on in that situation. And so based upon the fact that you're not going to know, we should all admit that we don't know. We don't know. What we do know is that we're all sinners. What we do know is that Jesus is a Savior who forgives and who heals, and he wants us to ask him. So since verse 15 is a little tricky, I did my own paraphrase of it, so I'm going to read that to you. The prayer of unwavering trust in God will save the one who is sick, whether that salvation is now or in eternity. And the Lord will raise him up with a physical healing if that is the Lord's will. And while it is not always the case, if he has committed sins which have brought on this sickness, he will be forgiven by God through the blood of Christ. So, prayer for when life happens. When life is hard, go to God in prayer. When life is good, go to God in praise. When I am sick, Go to leadership for prayer, for healing. We have, we have prayer available up front this morning after the service, both services. We have oil to anoint a person who is sick and wants this kind of prayer. So I would encourage you. Fourth point, all the time, go to one another and be a church of confession and prayer. So prayer for when life happens, when life is hard, when life is good, when I'm sick. But here you go, all the time. For all the time. It says, see, verse 16, it says, therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. So so he says the word therefore in the text, right? He says, therefore. Basically, he's saying in light of all of this talk about prayer, about forgiveness, about confession, about healing, about all of that, he's like, you know what? Let's be a community of prayer. He shifts to talking in the plural, talking one another. First, he says, confess Then he says pray. These are both commands. Then he says one another, plural, church community, ongoing activity, habit, culture, ethos, rhythm. That's the idea. Think about it. A culture of confession and prayer and healing and forgiveness is uniquely Christian. It means there is a centeredness on the gospel in that community where there's not shallow pretending and prideful performing, but authentic confessing where there's not just judging, but there's applying grace and praying for one another. He says, therefore, let's be a church like this. Therefore you all, here's your one another. Here's for the church. Here's for all the time. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. Which leads to verse 17 and 18. It says this in verse 17, Elijah, this is a guy in the Old Testament, okay? Elijah was a man with a nature like ours. And he prayed fervently That it might not rain. And for three years and six months, it did not rain on the earth. Then he prayed again, and heaven gave rain, and earth bore its fruit. You might think this is very out of place, but it's not. What James is doing is he's pointing to an example in the Old Testament where prayer had a powerful effect, it was transformational. And he's saying, if you're lacking some confidence in prayer, if some of your prayers aren't being answered, look at the stories of God answering prayer in the Old Testament or of those who can share a testimony with you. I think James's main point in talking about Elijah is there when he says he had a nature like ours. It's interesting, it says the prayer of a Righteous person has great power as it is working. Again, that's right after he tells you and me, confess your sins and pray with one another. Then he says the prayer of a righteous person. So who's he talking about when he says that? I'm telling you, this is important. Whenever I go to events, I'm a pastor, right? Whenever I go to a dinner at someone's house, and this is going to make you not invite me over, I hope it doesn't. I need a second service, we'll have a different example. Um, But I always get asked to pray for the food. Or even at my family reunion, it's like, well, we have a pastor among us. Why don't you bless the food, Matt? And I'm always a little bit like, all right, you know, I'll do the churchy thing and let's grab hands, you know? And I like some, someday I'm going to start like charging, like I'm going to have like plans, like tears, like which one do you want? Like, do you want the simple, like, let's just get ready to eat, but like pretty good prayer words and theology? Or do you want like the, I mean, do you want like the supersized, like everyone starts weeping? Like, I mean, you know. You can Venmo me. Um, (laughs) What am I talking about? Here's the point. Here's the point. The righteous person in this verse is is not the pastor. It's the one another's. It's the people of God praying for each other, confessing sins to one another. Our righteousness is, is through Christ. Christ makes us righteous, and he doesn't make pastors any more righteous than he makes regular believers in the church. That's why James says Elijah has a nature like ours. The point is pray. Pray for one another. Have a culture of prayer. So let's close with this. A couple of quotes. John Bunyan in Pilgrim's Progress says, You can do more than pray after you have prayed, but you cannot do more than pray until you have prayed. Queen Mary of Scotland said this I fear John Knox's prayers more than an army of 10,000 men. So let's pray, let's be a church. That when we come together, and by that I don't mean just in here. I mean the people of God being the church all week long. Let's be a church that prays. Prayer is not intended to be like the national anthem before the game. It's the key play on third and long that allows you to actually win the game. Matthew 21 is where we started, and I want to go there again. It is written, my house shall be called a house of prayer. But you have made it a den of robbers. So we want the church to be a house of prayer. We want our lives, our houses, to be houses of prayer with you. Remember this, though, the house of prayer, the house of the Lord, the temple in the Old Testament. What is the temple? It's the meeting place of God and man. Where a high priest constantly goes into the presence of God and lifts up prayers on behalf of the people of God. That's what the temple is. And I think it's important this morning that I remind us that Jesus is now the meeting place of God and man. And that Jesus is the great high priest who is always interceding for you. So if you feel some guilt this morning, if you feel some embarrassment this morning about prayer, Like me, you know you are not the house of prayer that you know God wants you to be. Can I encourage you? Look to Jesus. He's fulfilled it for you. And you know that as God looks at you, he sees his son, and his words are, this is my son in whom I am pleased. God is pleased with you if you're in Christ, not disappointed, not embarrassed about your prayer life. But also remember that the word of God does call you a temple of the Holy Spirit and he calls his church the household of faith. And so we do want to be a house of prayer. Knowing that God is pleased with us and led forward by Jesus. We want to be a people who commit to praying when life happens, when life is hard, when life is good, when we are sick and all the time. So this next song that we're about to sing is new. And it has some lines in it that remind us that in Christ, God is already pleased with us that God is proud of us, that our view of ourselves is often not actually correct because in the gospel and in the grace of God and as we are seen standing in the blood of Christ, God approves us. He loves us. He wants to spend more time with us. And that's what prayer is. So let me close in prayer.